Hey, it's Cecilia, host and producer of The Current Rewind. If you're listening to this the day it drops, it's Election Day in the U.S. You may be wondering what a First Avenue podcast is doing in your feed on today of all days. Well, first, we wanted to encourage you to vote, if you haven't already. On the flip side, if you're seeking a few moments of respite, we got you. Third, a while back, I noticed a really weird coincidence that this episode takes place on an election day itself. In fact, some First Avenue employees remember frantically working to save their club and having to take a break to go vote. It's funny how history rhymes. We thought that it was not going to be open anymore. We thought it was done. Nathan was like, yeah, I think this is it. And we were like, really? Yeah. It was uh, heartbreaking. It was crazy because when we closed the door for the what we thought was the last time, uh, all the lights in the whole place were off, but we turned on all the trouble lights. And that's how we left the building that day. I'm Cecilia Johnson, and this is The Current Rewind, the show putting music's unsung stories on the map. This season, we're looking back at 50 years of First Avenue, one of the Twin Cities and the country's greatest live venues. So far this season, we've welcomed a series of guest hosts. But this episode, I'll be your guide through the story of First Avenue's bankruptcy. In this episode, we'll visit First Ave on one of its darkest days, which some folks took to be the end. But others, including devoted employees, local music fans, and a certain stage-diving ally in City Hall would not rest until they'd saved the club. Although it shocked a lot of music fans, First Avenue's 2004 bankruptcy was a long time coming. If you've been following this season of our show, you've probably got a general understanding of First Avenue's finances, from its genesis as The Depot up until 2004. These carpetbaggers weren't bagging much cash. But First Avenue is First Avenue. A dingy little place at first. It was real dingy, you know, like... We were like $60,000 in debt with no backup revenue source. And the whole way through, Alan Fingerhut had owned or co-owned the business. We introduced him in the first episode of our season, but just for a little recap... Fingerhut had grown up in a suburb of Minneapolis, and his family ran a profitable mail-order company. He was one of the founding members of The Committee, the small group who opened The Depot at First Avenue and 7th Street in 1970. The Depot entered Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 1971, and Cincinnati disco chain American Events took over the club's operations in 1972, rebranding The Depot as Uncle Sam's. But the chain dissolved that partnership in about 1979. Soon afterwards, Steve McClellan, the club's general manager, brought his old friend and roommate, Jack Myers, aboard to help manage money. We were a very good, in my mind, a good yin and yang. 
that when the club was doing well, I was in charge. But when we weren't doing well, Jack was in charge. And according to Jack Myers, the fourth member of their quartet was Byron Frank. Alan Frigrad grew up with a buddy named Byron Frank. They were inseparable for years. And Byron is a real accountant, CPA, very good businessman. And he ran all of Alan's concerns. And uh, so we had a meeting in 1979, Byron, Alan, Steve, and Jack, and put together our plans for First Avenue, shook hands, and off we went. Our our main uh, rule from Alan was never ask me for money, uh, which we never did, thankfully. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been there so long. Uh, Anyway, that was the big meeting, and those were the four of us. And we always reported to Byron, just like most of uh, Alan's concerns reported to Byron. So uh, Byron was what we'd call boss, Alan's what we'd call owner. And this was even better because the owner lived in California. So he kept most of his good ideas away. Our producer, Jesse Wiza, spoke with Jack this summer. So when you were assistant manager, what did you do on a typical day? Everything Steve did. It started out, uh, Steve did the promotion and I did everything else, which means uh, open the door, uh, hire and fire, run operations and do the accounting when I had time and count the money. You know, it was a real shoestring. And I'm kind of proud of that. I knew not to go to him to ask for any special request if we just had a terrible week or a month. But if I just had like three sellout shows and we had, oh, I don't know, I think 30 grand would have been a lot of money at the time in the bank account. I'd go, whoa, we can fix the floors. We can fix everything. And then Jack would remind me that the $8,000 insurance bill is due at the end of the month. And he would line up 20, or 20 to $30,000 of payments due just to stay open. You know, ridiculous things like insurance. But Jack always made sure Alan got his check. Oh, yeah, not only didn't he give us any money, but he got his check every month, which he was used to because Uncle Sam sent him that check. So I sent him the same amount amount every month, and that was copacetic, and that's how it worked. That was, as we shall see, years later became very important. Jack, Steve, and a few others ran the office upstairs at First Avenue. But they were all day guys. And Rob Milanov, who worked at First Avenue from 1999 until the 2004 bankruptcy, was a night staffer. Uh, I started out as roaming security, you know, just the guy who wanders around the club trying to keep an eye on things. I eventually worked my way into uh, bar backing and bartending and busing and cashiering and never worked stage, but did a little bit of everything else. Like Richard Luca from earlier this season, Rob got a job at First Avenue while attending a show. We're standing in line, and they came down the line, and they're like, we're short on people. Anybody need a job? <laughs> and, uh, and unlike many of the people who jumped at that opportunity, Rob ended up staying for years. Everybody thought they wanted to work there, but once they started, you know, the vast majority of people are gone within a couple of days because at the time, you didn't get paid anything, and you're risking your life, and it was a hassle. Like lots of restaurant and entertainment jobs, First Avenue was a sink or swim kind of gig. I mean, you'd be friendly with people right away, but to be honest, we were not the nicest to, to new employees. We threw you to the wolves and, and you know, saw if you could survive. And you'd get help in some ways, but at the same time, it, like, like I said, you know, you had to prove yourself or you were just going to be another person that lasted three days. 
While interviewing former employees, I heard about a particularly hilarious tradition. Only at First Avenue does Throw You to the Wolves translate to involuntary karaoke. But that was part of being a new person. If you're looking at the stage, there's that sitting rail along the left side of the room. And uh, basically at the employee meeting at the end of the night, you'd have to stand up on the sitting, on the sitting rail and uh, sing a song. You didn't know this. Like uh, Occasionally somebody would hear it through the grapevine that this is what they did or whatnot. But for the most part, most of us were completely surprised by this. And what did Rob sing? <laughs> well, I stood up, uh, I thought for a few seconds, and I started singing uh, the chorus to Are You Drinking With Me, Jesus by uh, Mojo Nixon, <laughs> which uh, was a popular choice. By the end of the chorus, most of the staff was singing along. <laughs> But Rob's First Avenue was pretty different from that of the higher-ups. He says most of the office workers would go home by the time the concerts actually started. The night staff didn't really see the upper-upper management too much. The one we'd see the most was Steve, because he would at least stick around long enough to say hello to the bands as they were loading in. The office was kind of this foreign world. you know. Just like, we knew the office as far as, like, you know, getting change and, and you know, that them, you know, putting the money away at the end of the night and that's where you pick up your walkie-talkie and your keys and whatnot and drop them off at the end of the night. But other than that, you know. Like almost any job, there was some tension between those who set the wages and those who earned them. In 1998, one employee filed a Department of Labor complaint that attested to a couple different types of wage theft at First Avenue. No one wanted to go on the record with me to talk about it, mostly out of love for the club. But every First Avenue veteran we interviewed agreed that it was not a place to get rich. Even Steve tried to steer potential employees away from seeing First Ave as a career. One of my interview questions in those days was, you really need work, don't you? My suggestion, and and I was serious when I told people this, my suggestion, go get that full-time job that's going to pay your rent, then come back, talk to me about some supplementary income. I asked Rob Milanov if he felt management had any way to pay people more. I honestly don't know if there was, because you look at the bartenders just piling money into their registers, and, the, and, uh, and you think this place is making money hand over fist. But if you think of the logistics of it, like on, on any given night, a lot of times we'd have like 40 staff members on. And, you know, you've got the expense of, of the bands and the DJs and, and you know, the, the stage people and... I, I do think they probably paid us what they could. Despite the low wages, many First Ave employees truly cared about their jobs and each other. Sometimes we were bonded by fire, literally. <laughs> or, or putting our lives on, on the line for eight bucks an hour. That, that kind of makes you family. And although it was a tough job, Rob remembers those days fondly. I saw a lot of good shows for free. <laughs> That's what it was about. That's why you literally risk your life for $8 an hour is because you get to be a part of the music scene. I feel like, you know, I was part of these shows. In 2003, tension was mounting amid the owner and manager quartet. Alan, Byron, Jack, and Steve. Jack remembers it like this. Sometime in 03, Byron and Alan had a falling out over the stupidest reason I ever heard of. Alan claims he didn't sign something that Byron had. 
And there's no way Byron would have done that. So he he up and fired Byron after what 50 years of Byron writing everything for him. So anyway, remember the four people at the table, Alan, Byron, Steve, and Jack. He fired Byron, our boss. And that's complicated because in 2000, when we bought the building, Alan didn't want to spend any money. Remember the rule? Don't ask me for money. The team behind First Avenue hadn't owned their building until 2000, when the building's then-owner presented an ultimatum. Buy the real estate or face a huge rent hike. And Alan got, uh, we were able to get enough for 20% of the property. And then Alan's kids, through his brother, who's trustee, each bought 10%. So that's 40%. So then Jack and Steve had to step up. And we each bought 10%. That was a lot of money to us. Uh, and then Byron filled in the other 40%. So now you have a situation where uh, Byron's running the club uh, as the manager who owns 40% more than Alan, and Alan fires them. Well, obviously, there's going to be disputes over the property. So, of course, Alan doesn't have enough shares to uh, uh, replace Byron. Uh, he's a minority shareholder. So, of course, he calls Jack and Steve. This started the downturn for us. And he said, vote with me. We're going we're, we're to do something to Byron. He wanted to buy him out, force him out. I don't remember. So at any rate, uh, Joe Finley, our lawyer, said, you don't want to get in the middle of that. You don't vote in any of these things. Well, Alan knew that a no vote made him impotent. He couldn't get rid of Byron, and so he got mad at Jack and Steve. So all we did is no vote, which when you think about it, makes a heck of a lot of sense. Because why in the world would we pick sides between Byron and Alan? Okay, now that's a big thing. So then months later, we, we had to stop sending... Alan, his monthly check. Alan didn't like that. Oh, I knew he wouldn't. And then Joe said I had to do it. I had to send Alan a letter saying things are bad and we need money or they're going to get worse. I didn't want to send it because I knew where it was going to go. But I did because that's what managements do. Uh, we weren't the only club losing money in 2004. Uh, it was just a bad year for bands. Who knows why? kind of I used to call them the bad band gods they were good some years they were bad other years and, and that's the best I could ever figure Jack and Steve's backup plan was to entice Jam Productions or another big company into buying First Avenue well Alan wasn't interested in selling but we we did we tried to buy the club uh knowing full well that Alan would would take that letter he received saying not only aren't I getting my check but now you want money, and that's the one first rule I told you back in 1979. I got a better idea. You and Steve are fired. So now, of the four people at the meeting that put it all together in 79, three are fired. And, and this is important to us. Since we've been terminated, we no longer owe any loyalty to Alan. The club limped along for five more months. But according to longtime first half stage manager Randy Hawkins, its operations were not pretty. It was uh, heartbreaking. I think, I don't know, without pointing any fingers, um, the place was not being run the best by the owners at the time. The money wasn't going back into the club. The money was going somewhere else. And uh, they lost some good booking people. 
Steve and Jack were gone. It was being run by a team that wasn't, I don't know how to say it. They just weren't quite on top of it. You know, they didn't have the same luster that people do now. Bankruptcy rumors had been swirling around First Avenue for a long time. Often enough that First Avenue DJ John Smith, a.k.a. DJ Smitty, had become desensitized. Because it seems those murmurings happen like every five years. Nate Kranz, who would play a crucial role in First Avenue's reopening, was so used to the chaos that even he didn't expect the club to actually close. I wouldn't say it was just all hunky-dory, but it didn't seem odd. It just seemed like the normal environment with which First Avenue operated, where there was, you were always, you know, one foot on the banana peel, the other in the grave, right? And that was just the whole attitude. But near the end of 2004, it all came crashing to a halt. Halloween of 2004. Smitty was set to DJ that night. I got to the club and I saw Finger Hut. This was the first time, let's see, 2004, in 11 years of working at the club. Uh, that the first time I saw Alan Finger Hut. But he recognized Alan anyway. It was like literally, I, the minute I looked at him, I was just like, that's Alan Finger Hut, even though he was a disheveled man with a, a, a satchel. Who else could it be? <laughs> it was either the ghost of Christmas Pass or his Alan Finger. And that did not seem to bode well for the club. I was like, okay, the odds of this talk have just gone up significantly. And whoever was in the office was like, eh, don't worry about it. Nothing to see here. I was like, okay. I did my first couple of sets no problem. And then during my last set, I was closing 1.30 a.m. to 2. And I was in there with uh, employee Nathan Anderson and now general manager Nate Kranz. We were in the booth together and he looked at me and Nathan was like, yeah, I think this is it. And we were like, really? It's like, yeah. And we thought about the closing of First Avenue for a minute and then we had to figure out what songs we were going to play. So we played some Lifter Puller and some Mighty Mofos and closed out the night. Crank up your amps, man. The next day, I got a phone call at my day job telling me to come grab my records because the feds were coming to padlock the doors. We, we got a call at like 9 a.m. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, all your bikes, records, anything you got stored at the club, go get it right now because the doors are locked at noon and it's done. Rob Milanov could not believe it. It was just such a spur-of-the-moment thing. Like, um, We're working Halloween night, which is one of the busiest nights of the year, and Alan Fingerhut comes around and says, don't worry, you guys all have a job for as long as you want it. You know, we lo I love you guys, blah, blah, blah. You know, shook each of our hands throughout the night, and uh, we got off work at 4 a.m., and five hours later, we get a call, come get your stuff out. Dan Corgan, First Avenue's longtime staff photographer, 
got to the club as fast as he could. There are people basically taking stuff, you know, to walking away with stuff. I went into the office and got a hold of three uh, binders of my photographs that I just didn't want to disappear into whatever happened. And I think we all walked down the street to a bar on Hennepin and started commiserating, you know, that, that it's done. You know, all my friends are in shock, literally in shock. Like, what the hell? But here's where the future of the club starts to get a little brighter. Nate Kranz and Sonia Grover, who are now First Avenue's general manager and booking manager, respectively, had both worked there since 1998. Research assistant Taylor Seberg interviewed them together for Rewind last winter. We met each other in 98 working at Cheapo. So we worked at a record store together, became friends, and, you know, we'd, you know, hang out or work together or go to see shows with each other or run into each other at shows. And we were, we lived just a few blocks apart. So I'd go over to his house for parties. And then he started at First Avenue in July of 98. And then I started in October, sat right next to each other every day until Mm -hmm. 2009 or 10. When did you move offices? 2009 or 10. 2009 or 10, and then a couple of years ago, put me right back next to him <laughs> <laughs> with our poor assistant in between us. But I, I mean, I was like, I was his maid of honor when he got married. We are very tight, yeah. for sure. And the minute they heard about the bankruptcy, they hurried down to First Avenue, grabbed their desk calendars, and started trying to rebook their shows at different venues. They couldn't control First Avenue's fate. But they could try to make sure that the bands who'd been scheduled to play there could still play shows somewhere. There was no inactivity with me and Nate. That is you were for still sure. Going. You were we like were our going jobs. nonstop, you know, every day. Because Nate had internet, and I don't think I did at my house at the time. So we'd go over to Nate's house and email, call, making sure, you know, we didn't cancel all the shows, but... Um, just sort of try and keep track of the shows we had, shows that were coming up, letting the agents know what was going on, letting the local media know what was going on with shows. Um, my phone bill was like $300 after that because I made the mistake of not upping my my plan. But yeah, we were like working nonstop for those those few weeks in between. We were locked out at First Ave. We started, the first day we went to the Fine Line and worked, they were nice enough to let us use their offices. And then after that, like Sonia was saying, we worked out of my house. While my girlfriend was moving out. Yeah. <laughs> Sonia and Nate had to deal with the immediate questions. Where could they send the bands who were supposed to play First Avenue? And some bigger questions. The first stage was moving the shows that were supposed to happen on those days. Oh, oh like Like, like the next day and the day after that and the day after that. So we were moving shows into the Cedar or the mm. Turf Club or the Fine Line or whatever, just trying to do whatever we could to find a home for the shows that we had booked that were displaced. Once we got through that period, which was obviously super hectic, we're Mm -hmm. trying to move, and it was us, and Steve was helping us, but it was, you know, nobody was getting paid, we don't have jobs, we were just basically being like, okay, we have nothing else to do, let's save these shows, and then we'll figure out, we'll figure out what's next, but we know saving the shows was what had to happen first. Journalists from the Star Tribune, New York Times, City Pages, and beyond reported on First Avenue's closure. But Nate and Sonia were mostly getting calls from the agents of the bands whose gigs were in danger. Had to do interviews. Yeah, but get yelled at a lot. Like, like I'd really emphasize that. We, we, we got to make a lot of phone calls on the day that we lost our job to people 
that just yelled at us, but ultimately came around. <laughs> well, one of the agents, one of the agents threatened to call the police and Whoa. get me put in jail. He's a friend now, and I bring it up every now and again but too. I'm, but but I'm confused. Why? <laughs> like, us too. Yeah, because we had you know you have we were low. We have contract. You have contracts. You have bands booked, contracts signed, and they were fighting for their artist. Yes. But then when when for ninety percent of those shows things calmed down and we were able to accommodate those bands. I mean, I think there was one or two bands that ended up actually canceling, and at least one of them. They weren't going to let the situation be fixed. They just weren't. They, we gave them plenty of options, and they just turned every single one of them down. The community was so amazing, still going, to, you know, still going to all these shows. And I think we probably sold tickets that we may not have otherwise sold because people sort of wanted to show their support for like First in Avenue the, in the era where it was, yeah, in, like it was closed. And I don't, yeah, and I don't think Nate, I don't think you and I paid for our own drinks for like two hey, or three weeks anytime we'd go to the bars. Yeah, most of the deals were able to stay intact and. Um, reputations were saved and after a couple of weeks we got to start looking towards the future again the future was a company called f troop whereas the committee inc was alan's business f troop was led by byron frank we were in communication with steve and byron frank and so i knew the process that they were going through to try and expedite the bankruptcy and so because of that line of communication we were trying to take care of business in the moment. But we also kind of knew that, all right, there is going to be First Avenue. We don't know if we have jobs there. We don't know what that's going to look like, what how they're going to want to operate it. But we did know that it was coming back online or very likely to come back online after a short amount of time. Writing for the New York Times, David Carr described the November 12th bankruptcy court hearing in Minneapolis where the business changed hands. Quote, in that courtroom high above the city on Friday, a simple agreement was reached. Mr. Frank, along with Mr. McClellan, Mr. Myers, and a trust made up of members of the Fingerhut family, but not Mr. Fingerhut, would be allowed to buy the First Avenue business, lock, stock, and punk rock, for $100,220. Judge Robert J. Kressel was presiding, and he not only approved the offer with a few minor tweaks— but waived the traditional stay of 10 days because, as he noted, I gather there is some urgency to the situation, unquote. And the Honorable Judge Kressel was not the only official who helped usher First Avenue into its future. I mean, shout out to R.T. Ryback, right? Hell yeah, for sure. For <laughs> yeah, sure. The yes. mayor at the time, right? Yeah, he was the mayor at the time, and uh, he went above and beyond to make sure that Anything that he could do in his power as mayor, he was not going to let First Avenue go away. Over the years, I spent a lot of time at First Avenue, right when I got out of college. This is R.T. Ryback, who served as mayor of Minneapolis from 2002 to 2014. For the five years first out of college, I spent three, four, five nights a week at First Avenue, Dancing, music, all that. So I got to see some pretty great shows. Before becoming mayor, he was a journalist covering the local arts and culture scene. So First Avenue was a huge cultural icon to me. And way before the uh, bankruptcy at First Avenue, um, I was having lunch with uh, the late and wonderful Brian Coyle, who was a city council member in Minneapolis. And I was a reporter at the time. And we got in this weird conversation like, 
Minneapolis has torn down too many of its great buildings. What building would we most stand in front of the bulldozer to prevent being bulldozed? And we almost at the same time blurted out, First Avenue. Ironically, Brian, uh, who was at City Hall when we had that conversation, uh, sadly died. But I was at City Hall when there was that moment when First Avenue could close. And I don't think I waited for their call. I called them and just said, I want to do whatever I can do to help. Byron, Steve, and Jack needed First Ave's liquor license to be transferred over to them before they could reopen. And we were in R.T. Ryback's, the mayor at the time, his office, uh, when R.T. called the head of the liquor license. And he said, do you have that application for the First Avenue liquor license? I go, well, as a matter of fact, I do. He said, do you see anything wrong with it? No. He said, well, can they have it by Monday? He go, oh, yeah, no problem. You know, and you do. You don't get that. Also, unbeknownst to us, bankruptcies take years to go through the courts. What we take? A week? Somebody said, I don't want to get this tied up in court. And I can only guess it's good old R.T. Ryback again. He was a real sport. He really loved the club. And so it was that on November 19th, 2004, First Avenue reopened with a show by costume metal legends, Guar. Steve and Jack returned to work, and Jack would stay on until 2010. But Steve was gone within months. Uh, I think Byron just kept me on for as long as he needed to. Larry Johnson actually explained it best to me. He said, Byron's playing a big risk board, and he's got to get rid of Alan and, and um, Alan's brother, Ronnie Fingerhut. We're both on the license some way or the business. He had to get rid of them before he'd come at me. But I remember Larry Johnson looking at me and saying, Steve, you're gone the moment Alan and Ronnie were gone. And, of course, within three months after, I could see the sights were on me then. And I guess everybody warned me I just didn't see it coming kind of thing. But it was already, you know, the the, the damage had been done in my mind. The, The club was becoming something... I no longer had control, and I was a control freak, just like everybody I couldn't get along with. You know, when two control freaks meet somewhere in the middle, it... it... Byron wasn't able to speak with us for the show, so he can't weigh in on Steve's second departure. But Nate's description of Byron does seem to align with Steve's. Yeah, when Byron bought it, all of a sudden, for the first time in the history of of the club, you had one person, you had a person in control of the real estate and the business. Anybody that's leasing a space will tell you, how much money do you really want to put into improving that building so that your landlord has a more valuable property to market or whatever? So if First Avenue, the club, ever made money, it went to Allen. And if it didn't make money, well, it just didn't make money. But it certainly never got reinvested into the actual physical space. And so... By the late 90s, when we got in there, it it was pretty rough. And so when Byron came in, you know, he's like, how are we going to do this business? And we met and kind of came up with a plan. And the plan was, all right, we're going to try it this way. And if it works, then we got a business. If it doesn't, then I got to find somebody else that's going to make it work. And so as a team, like us as bookers and, and the operations staff and everybody, we like, kind of came up with a plan, started booking shows, started putting in more, um, I'd say, like kind of professional approaches to 
the behind the scenes. Not that it's not fun, but it's got to be less chaotic. It's got to be run a little bit more professionally. First Avenue ended up hiring back about two-thirds of the approximately 120 staff who lost their jobs. But Rob Milanov said his loyalty to Stephen Allen kept him away. I retired, uh, and at the time, the Triple Rock was the First Avenue retirement home. That's what we called it. (laughs) The entire staff there had worked at First Avenue at one point or another, and they were moving on to quieter pastures, so to speak. After the change of ownership, First Avenue upgraded the air conditioning and fire sprinklers. And even during the Great Recession, they had some profitable years. You know that enormous billboard on top of First Avenue's roof? That revenue source was installed shortly after Byron took over, with another assist from R.T. Ryback. In 2009, Byron had a health scare and considered selling First Avenue. But his daughter, Dana Frank, who'd grown up seeing shows at First Avenue, volunteered to learn the business and take care of the club. For almost a decade, she's been commuting from Los Angeles, where she lives with her wife, to First Avenue in Minneapolis. But Nate and Sonia say she's much more hands-on than Alan Fingerhut was. He was completely off. Like, he did not come to the venue. He did not have meetings. He did not have anything to do with the day-to-day operations. Um, Steve and Jack managed it, and they had a contract to manage it. Like, literally, their relationship was, Alan's not going to manage it. He's going to hire this other company. That was Steve and Jack's company, and that was what was managing the the business, from my perspective. Then whereas um, for Dana, it's almost, it's super rare to go a few days without seeing her at First Ave. And I talk to her, email her several times a week. I know Nate's in contact with her way day. more. But she is an everyday, every hour presence at First Ave. Alan Fingerhut didn't respond to our interview requests last winter. And sadly, he passed away on October 12th, 2020. But he did give a final word on First Avenue to David Carr in the New York Times in 2004. Quote, I got beat out of my bar, fair and square, but I don't want to be attacked anymore. How can I be the bad guy in all of this? I lost $800,000 and half my hearing keeping this place going as long as I did. Unquote. After Byron Frank took over, First Avenue instituted health and retirement plans for its employees. But even now, it's hard to make a living wage at a rock club. Of course, the pandemic has brought new focus to the overall sustainability of the entertainment industries. But even before the pandemic, the live music industry as a whole was facing huge challenges. Even if First Avenue is a much healthier business now than it was in 2004. This episode of The Current Rewind was hosted by me, Cecilia Johnson. I produced this episode with the help of Jesse Weiza, and Taylor Seberg contributed research and consulting. Marisa Morseth is our research assistant, and Jay Gabler is our editor. Our theme music is the song Hive Sound by Icetep. This episode was mixed by Johnny Vince Evans, and I want to say thank you to Gene Anderson, Rick Carlson, David Safar, and Shelby Sachs for additional support. If you're enjoying this podcast, the number one thing that you can do to support us is to tell a fellow music fan that it's out there. 
To find a transcript of this episode or any other one, go to thecurrent.org slash rewind. The Current Rewind is made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. It is a production of Minnesota Public Radio's The Current.